0: The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own... Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical, first hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at thedunesciencegroup.com.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first Sea Change podcast episode of 2020. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to learn about the most inspiring people living, working, and recreating on the American shorelines. I hope you all are having a great start to the year and new decade Personally, I, I feel like it's off to a bit of an overwhelming start on an international relation, political and pop culture level. It feels a bit like we're starting off the year drinking from a fire hose of breaking news to the point where breaking news doesn't even have the impact or weight behind it that it's intended to anymore. and. I mention this not because I'm sitting here waxing poetic about all that is morose in the world, but rather challenging myself and you all to consider what is going well in the world and your lives, and to be intentional about the things that we can control, like our own actions. So let's start off this show in this year by making a commitment to choosing kindness and making progress no matter how small or how big, within ourselves, our circles, in our communities. And the purpose of this show is to shine a light on those change makers and positive influencers in the world. And it's my hope that these episodes spark a little joy, curiosity, and motivation in all of us, which is why I think my guest today is the perfect person to welcome on as my first guest of the year. She is someone that has been a bright spot on my life for many years now. She is a dear friend of mine and I am so excited for you all to meet her today. Morgan Taylor, thank you for joining me and welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Jenna.
1: Okay, so Morgan, you and I go way back, but before we get there, I want to learn more about your earlier life and time spent growing up in Maine. Yes, listeners, we have another Mainer on the show because they rule and I love them. But <laughs> <laughs> Morgan, what reflections come to mind when you think about your experience growing up there?
2: Probably, like if I had to sum it up in one word, spoiled, I guess, because um, I grew up on the coast as well. Um And I think for the majority of my life, I didn't, I didn't like fully grasp that it wasn't this way (laughs) for others. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, you know, I got to spend a lot of time outside. We went camping, you know, we went to Acadia every year for like long weekends and it wasn't just a family thing. It was a friends and family thing. And it's just kind of what everybody did. And, um, And now that I'm at this stage in my life, like anyone who, you know, follows a certain path realizes that it's not that way for everybody. And um, so I think like looking back and coming to a point in time where I'm considering how I want to raise my kids, it's like, holy cow, was I spoiled.
1: And I think, you know, I had to have the same experience of eventually leaving Maine to fully appreciate what I had while I was there, Um, but I'm in a similar space as you when I think about what an incredible place to grow up um, between the outdoors and just the school systems and all of the opportunity that you have there and how safe the communities really are. It's it's such a special place. And I know that you mentioned camping and visiting Acadia National Park, of course, but I'm wondering what are some of your go-to ways to connect with the outdoors and do you have any favorite places to visit? And if so, why do you hold those places so close to your heart?
2: Oh, so I have a few favorite places. Um, I'd say my favorite way to connect to the outdoors honestly is um, gardening, (laughs) but I've also been lucky enough to live in areas where I'm surrounded by the outdoors. Um, I've never really lived in urban areas. Um, so, you know, not everybody has the same silence outside that I have now and had growing up. Um, but I just feel like hiking in today's day and age, you'd have to be hiking specific trails to really get the same, kind of Zend out just because hiking's so popular right now. Um, some trails out there are like highways. Um, and I really don't think that that's the best. Unless you've been alone in the woods, you're not getting the full experience. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you mentioned the quiet and the silence that you get from spending time out in the woods, specifically off of the really busy hiking trails, because that's something I mentioned to a lot of my friends down here where I live in Boston, where, you know, I almost forget about it. There are two things that when I go home for a weekend, usually I drive later in the day to avoid the traffic, especially in the summertime, because that's like craziness with tourists driving to Maine. But I will get home and immediately it's like the silence is so loud. Like I get out of my car and I realize just how distracted I am at all times living in a city and how much outside noise is just constantly going on to the point where I drown it out in my own head. But to then put myself in a place where there is actual silence is so moving. And then I'll look up and see, a world with minimal light pollution and just how bright the stars are is just such an overwhelming experience sometime. And one that I am very fortunate to be able to experience on a regular basis with, um, you know, a home base of family still located in
2: Maine. I don't know. I'm trying to think of some other like special places. Like obviously the beach is a special place anywhere where I've kind of formed memories, you know, like, um, my camp, um, Baxter, a lot of special places in that place. We will talk about that later on. Um, but anywhere where I have a memory, even if it's not even like if I were to bring a stranger there, they'd be like, okay, (laughs) what's this about? (laughs) Um, but I can, and I know that, um, with my boyfriend, Nick, it's the same way. Like we'll go through a walk in the woods and he'll point at a spot and he'll be like, I shot my first deer sitting against this tree and my grandpa was with me. And like, you can't buy those memories, you know? Um, and so special, special memories, I guess, um, create those special places for me.
1: And do you think that those experiences sparked your interest in pursuing your career in the conservation field and and ending up having the experiences that you did with um, the career path that we'll get into in a few minutes here?
2: Um, Honestly, I think what sparked it for me, I was in high school and um, my mom found an ad in the paper for a wildlife rehabilitation center in town that needed volunteers and so I didn't have a license at the time and it was a half an hour from the house. So that was a big commitment for her. <laughs> she, uh, I God volunteered with, parents. They I are so know. selfless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I volunteered for four hours every Sunday, Saturday or Sunday, um, for four years I did that. And that definitely sparked the accessible wildlife interest that like, it doesn't always have to be viewing. I could actually be doing something, you know, in my 16 year old brain. Um, I kind of put two and two together and was like, well, this is great. You know, feel like you're making a difference learning about wildlife. Um, I was naive at the time. (laughs) Um, but that is kind of what made me go into wildlife ecology. Um, I'd like to say, you know, that it was because my parents provided me with all of these outdoor opportunities. But I think that that was just part of my life. I didn't see it at the time as like a direction that I could go in. I just saw it as the way my life was and the way that my life would continue to be. But when I really got the hands-on experience, that's when I was really saying to myself like oh this is like it's all coming together and I can do this you know as my livelihood as hard as the universe made it for me (laughs) I did it
1: (laughs) Yeah, I hear you on that I it took me a while to to figure out that I I could get paid to take care of the planet I mean albeit I wish that I could get paid more but you know, there's always something to strive to and to strive for. But um, I think that's, it's a similar path that I had growing up is that I had two very active parents that, you know, encourage us to spend a lot of time outside. And they also spent a lot of time outside with us. And I didn't know any different. I just thought that was what you did with your spare time as you went outdoors and explored. Um, So when I first, it, you know, it took me until, college and after college to realize that there are people out there that would pay me to uh, take care of either their land. I worked on a farm for a little while and I think that was really where I first started forming in my mind that this is something that I could actually do for a living. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that even though it took me a long time and took you a little bit, we both ended up here because it's a really special place uh, to work in for sure. Agreed. So I also want listeners to know that Morgan is a woman of many talents, and although she probably will not say it herself, um, (laughs) but it's one of the things that I admire most about you, Um, and I feel like you're constantly learning these new skills, and it seems like you're working on, you know, just always working on some sort of interesting creative project, but not only are you creating, you're really resourceful and mindful... (laughs) yeah yeah no, I was just gonna say that you're just so really you're resourceful and mindful about where you're sourcing your materials from um so just wanted to hear your thoughts on that whole process and you know where you where you get your your drive to care so deeply about like the supply chain and consumer behavior and sustainability and this whole creative process
2: that you have so it all started with wool i was living in Northern Maine in a rural community, um, with, you know, the average age was over retirement age. Um, so not a lot of young people, um, to socialize with. And I was living by myself and I met, the wife of a coworker of mine, and she was really big in the um, knitting community. She had a knitting podcast or a video video podcast. She still to this day holds knitting retreats, um, and she taught me so much. I, I knew how to knit, but I didn't know everything that went into fiber Um, in every sense of the word, um, because you can knit with more than just wool, obviously. Um, and she really taught me that being a quote unquote yarn snob is not a bad thing. (laughs) It makes you conscious of, you know, not just the breeds of the sheep, and that's a whole other ball game. You know, you could go as deep as you want there. Um, you know, we have heritage breeds, we have rare breeds, um, but also the treatment of the animals and really looking at the fiber and the treatment of that fiber, even after it's left the sheep, um, you know, the whole process of creating yarn, um, can go in so many different directions. And, she really just sat me down and taught me like, not only this is what this fiber feels like and this is what this fiber feels like, but this is how this fiber got from A to Z and ended up in your lap. And if you like it, that's okay. And you can knit with it. But if you don't like the story that you're hearing, acknowledge that and go with something else. And for a lot of fibers, I didn't like the story I was hearing. Um, And so I really took that And like any lifestyle change of which I am still (laughs) a work in progress on most areas of my life, I just kind of took that and was like, okay, I'm only going to buy yarn. It's easy to do it with something that, you know, the rest of your life really doesn't depend on. I was like, okay, this is an extra expense. You know, this is my hobby. I'm only going to buy yarn that is, um, in my mind, sustainable, um, And then I slowly took that and used it for other parts of my life. And even though, you know, I'm not making all of my own clothes, I still try and do as much as I can with what I have. And so later when I got more into hunting and trapping, I still try and use, um, as much of that as I can. And it's become part, you know, of, of our, of our life in a way I didn't think it would. Um. You know, we're not, you know, charging people to, you know, make clothes and rugs and hats and stuff for them. But, you know, our friends are having twins and they have sheep and they asked us, you know, as their, as their baby shower gift, if Nick and I would tan, um, two of their sheep hides to put in the nursery. And I was like, you know, that's something that Nick and I can offer our Mm -hmm. loved ones, um, That is not only meaningful because it came from us, but that is their life. Like they survive off of those sheep, it means way more to them than a store bought gift. And so, it's not something that I would ever see myself, you know, doing as a job. But I keep taking it. It's the same with you know having going from having a garden and just eating raw vegetables to expanding your garden and canning. You know, it's that same mentality of just like, okay, I love what I'm doing. What else can I do? <laughs> you know, and just taking it one step further.
1: Yeah, I think that there are a few things that I, I really appreciate about what you just said. And the the first is the importance of mentors. I mean, mentors come in many different forms and they don't have to come into your life in a formal capacity, whether you're in school or, you know, somebody at a job, it can be as simple as a connection you make through friends, like the woman that taught you everything that you know now about knitting and really sparked your interest into diving deeper into that world. Um, But then also, I think in today's community, there's so much that is out of sight, out of mind in terms of our supply chain and where we get everything from our food to our clothing to, you know, body products, you name it. It just is it's like an economy of convenience where we can just go to a store and pick up what we need and not even put any extra thought into where it came from um, and the effect that it's having on the planet. So I think that you approach that in a really interesting way that I have been inspired by you to do a little bit more in my life where I you know, just take a moment to think about where literally everything that I have In my room and in my life comes from, and learn a little bit about the backstory and see if it jives with my personal morals. Um, I understand that sometimes there isn't, you know, there are people out there that may not have the time to do that um, or, you know, have the financial support to make different choices. But you know, I think also buying local sometimes can end up being a lot cheaper than a lot of uh, a lot of the messaging around it makes it I, seem.
2: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that.
1: But you also mentioned hunting, and I want to talk about that a little bit more. Um, and from the perspective of two people that grew up in Maine, which is a place where hunting is a centerpiece of the state's cultural and economic identity. I think that we'll have a great deal of overlap on our perspectives on the sport, despite the fact that I don't actually hunt and you do, but I do come from a long line of hunters. um, So I was exposed to it growing up quite a bit, but I would love to hear more about what hunting means to you and what that experience is like for you.
2: This is a, um, multi pronged question. So <laughs> so I grew up in a family of hunters, um, but I was not one of them. And when I became a young adult, I I always shot guns with my dad. Um, but I was never invited uh to the hunt, if you will. And when I got to be around I want to say probably 18. I asked if I could go, um, we have a hunting camp just north of Bangor. Um, and, and I was kind of given the runaround. Um, I should also say I'm the only female in my family that hunts.
1: I was going to say uh, as much as, you know, I have so much respect for female hunters and you know, I have no issue with hunting as a sport, but it certainly can be a
2: boys club. It's definitely a boys club. And I want to come back to that because I've met some amazing men. Um, so, yeah, I was kind of given the runaround for a few years. And then when I was 22, um, I, re- I finally just I went through my grandfather uh, and I basically was like, hey, Um, he was getting to an age where they didn't feel comfortable leaving him alone in the woods anymore. And I basically was like, Hey, you know, would you mind if I sat with you and I painted it, you know, like he was teaching me. And then I painted Mm -hmm. it to my dad. Um, you know, that it was one less thing they were going to have to worry about. And I think it all made sense to them as women are typically the caretakers. (laughs) And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds great. (laughs) Um, I definitely was not prepared for how challenging camp life would be and not every family is like this and not every camp is like this um, but for me, even to this day I, I it's not a great memory for me um you know we have a I think it's like 16 by 20. Um, it's two rooms. We have like the kitchen and then we have the bunk room. And I remember my first time up there, there were 14 men and myself and there's, you know, I'm, I'm changing in my sleeping bag. Um, I, we're up there for a whole week and I can't really shower cause there's nowhere for me to go. I can't, Give myself a sponge bath because there's nowhere for me to do it. Um, and there are, um, we can crop this out. But do you want me to talk about menstruation? <laughs> yeah, go
1: for it. I was thinking. Okay. Honestly, there's a whole set of different challenges that come with. I mean, they're also rewards in their own way. But depending on you, how you look at it, you know, being a woman. Um, has its own set of challenges when you enter situations like that. And also while I was hearing you talk, I just want to be clear to listeners that Morgan is, um, quite the outdoors woman. I do not feel like she is someone that is like, I need to shower every day and I need all these nice new things. So, um, just keep that in mind as she's talking about her experience at hunting camp. Um, as the lone female.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the first four years that I went to camp on our annual veterans day, um, like a four day camping trip because you can't hunt Sundays in Maine. So, um, the first four years I had my period every time and it became the first year was horrible. Um, because there were so many people in camp, I, you know, cleanliness is a very big deal um, for me, um, especially that time of the month. And it makes me feel human. It makes me feel, you know, just like relaxed. And like when you're exerting your body so much, you know, you, I need that time and, and that mindset. And that's, what's going to get me there is some hot water. (laughs) So, um, it was, you know, I'd go out to the outhouse and then I'd come back in and I'd have to go back out to the outhouse and I'd be questioned like, where are you going? You know, I'm going, I'm going to the outhouse. Why you were just out there. And, you know, some of the men I didn't really know because they were friends of friends or friends of family. Um, and to be frank, it really sucked. And, um, So after a call from my mom telling him I had my period, my dad also (laughs) slowly, it was a long road for him. Um, And I think he's still on that road. He's a lot further down it than he used to be. But, you know, he would come to me and be like, I didn't know you were on your period. Sorry. Um, But I, you know, I didn't, I didn't even have a curtain to change behind.
1: Oh man, I would have never taken you to hunting camp because the bears can smell the (laughs) (laughs) menstruation. Yeah, there
2: have been, there have been, there are so many blogs out there about, you know, whether, I mean, (laughs) that animals are attracted to it. And there are some women out there doing some really taking some bold steps, Um, all the power (laughs) to them. But I've listened to a lot of blogs about this. And like, a lot, especially for people out west that go on much longer hunting trips, and they're in the backwoods, and bears are an issue, and you know, and staying clean and hygienic, and especially in areas where you have to pack everything out, how to deal with that. So I've listened to a lot of different opinions, and honestly, I think it's just what works for you, um, but it's definitely trial and error. But that whole environment eventually became a place I didn't want to be in anymore, especially with such a limited season in Maine. Um, I was like, I only have so much time, but I didn't have anyone else to hunt with. And I didn't have any friends that hunted. Um, so it was kind of my only option. And I just kind of stuck with it for, let's see, I don't know, for four and a half years. Five years before Nick came into the picture. Um, and thank God I did <laughs> because once I started hunting with him and his friends and his friends now wives, I realized that this is not the way it is. This is the way it is in certain cohorts. Um, but there are some amazing men out there that want to just create an environment that you would want to come back to. And I, I think I've seen, I don't think I know, I've seen the same with kids. Um, I cannot tell you how many times I've seen parents um, take their children out and kind of want to push their limits. I remember very specifically at Thanksgiving where we were all out hunting and, uh, my dad was annoyed that one of his buddies was going to be bringing in his eight year old son who had asked to go. He wasn't being forced to go. He had asked to go and he was going to be coming in the woods late and leaving early. And my dad thought that was useless. And he was like, I don't even know why you'd come. And in my mind, I'm like, obviously it's because he wants, you know, he doesn't want to wake his son up super early. He wants him to be prepared. He wants him to leave the woods going home to a Thanksgiving meal. Like that's a great day. He doesn't want him to freeze his butt off. And there have been times where, you know, I was genuinely unhappy and freezing cold in the woods, just trying to push it because I knew that my family was going to have something. And when I say my family, I mean the men in my family, (laughs) Um, they were going to have something to say about it. And, you know, one time I called my dad and I was like, I I'm done. Like I can't sit here any longer. Um, I'm going to have mom pick me up. And his response was, well, I guess I just love it more than you do.
1: But, I, you know, I also think that that comes from a place of, of you knew at that point that you enjoyed hunting where with kids, I think you need to approach it in a way where you, you want those first experiences to be positive so that they'll want to keep going back. In having those moments, you know, and, um, you know, I personally have not had many experiences hunting, um, but, you know, my brother, my dad, my grandfather, aunts, uncles, cousins, pretty much everyone in my family hunts except for like me and my mom. Um, And hearing their experiences, it's so much more than going out to kill something. It's about bonding with each other and bonding with the outdoors. And I, you know, I'm not trying to speak from my own, my brother's own experience, but to me, it sounds like hearing him reflect on those moments that he had as a kid, you know, eight years old and younger out in the woods with all these grown men, you know, teaching him all of these important life skills. I think that you know he i don't think he would disagree with me saying this that i think that those were some of the most formative moments in his life is having those experiences interacting with his dad and his other family members out in out in the woods like that
2: oh for sure and it definitely created an environment that he wanted to go back to
1: yes and still loves to hunt and still you know even though he lives out in LA and sort of a trendy lifestyle he still has that that main boy in him that loves to go uh, hunt for weeks on end. So, um, I think there's definitely something to be said for that formative experience. Um, and also, using all of the animal, you know, thinking about where we so get our meat from now for those of us that eat meat on a daily basis or, you know, just in general. Um, going to the store, picking it up, not thinking about where it comes from, but being able to go out in the woods and put in the work and then have a freezer full of meat, you can use the hive, you can use the whole animal. Um, I think that's something that really flipped a switch for me in my mind. When I was growing up, I was not necessarily pro-hunting um, because I don't think I fully took the time to understand the whole process. Um, You know, and as I've gotten older, I think that that was one of the biggest things for me that really convinced me um, to be supportive of it is that the animal is living free out in the woods. And then after it passes away, most hunters use the entire animal.
2: Yeah, I mean, like any and like anything, you're gonna have people out there not doing what you wish they were doing. You're you'd see that in any in anything. Um, but I think education is big. I think the people I know, including myself, that are not eating certain parts. I mean, you know, I in, in this day and age, um, as a woman of childbearing age, I am no longer eating the liver, um, currently, but, um, I follow a lot of, um, I don't know if you'd call them like celebrity hunters, um, but people who highlight all the different parts of animals, parts that you didn't even know were harvestable (laughs) and how to prepare them. Um, You know, the Meat Eater podcast, which is now a Netflix series, is wildly popular um, just because he has a whole portion focused on the preparation and the cooking and how to eat things different ways. And um, I definitely try to take um, some or try to salvage the organ meats, but I personally could do a better job, um, with, um, you know, kidney, this is so choppy with the kidneys. Um, you know, I'm trying to stay away from the liver, but if someone were to ask me for the liver, I would absolutely, you know, bag it up and bring it home for them. Um,
1: (laughs) there you go. Listeners, if you want some liver, hit me up and I will connect you to Morgan.
2: But, you know, and and it also depends on, you know, certain communities, you know, whether you were brought up that it's bad luck to eat certain organs or, again, it's just what you've been told. But I think everybody would agree the more you can use, the better. Um, And that's kind of how I feel. I haven't crossed the line of brain tanning yet. I've asked a lot of people when I lived in northern Maine who have done it to teach me. What is brain tanning? So... (laughs) The theory is that every animal has enough brains to tan its own hide. You use the brains to tan the hide.
1: You like rub it
2: on it? It's Yeah, It's a it's a process that I don't know because no one would teach it to me. But I reached out to a bunch of people and the common response was, oh yeah, I did that once. What?
1: I've never heard of this in my life and I feel like I now need to have some sort of like Halloween episode on brain tanning. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, how do you, how do you think they, well, I mean, a lot of hides too could be smoked or, um, but yeah, so brain tanning, I, I haven't done that. And there are so many, so many different parts of the animal. Like, um, my, you know, I have, I try and save as much as I can. And at some point in my life, thank God for chest freezers. I will try and do something with them. Um, but yeah, I think education or just trying things and being okay with it not working out um, and not seeing it as a as wasteful is really the only way to improve without having that community around you. Um, and most of us don't have that community around us at our beck and call.
1: And, you know, I feel like we could... I'm loving this conversation about hunting and I feel like we could talk about it for the entire episode, especially relating to, you know, getting more women out in the woods and having that experience, um, hearing about more people's, more women's experiences out in the woods. And then all the way through to, you know, the conservation support that buying hunting and fishing permits contributes to. I mean, that's such a huge factor into U.S. and world conservation is, you know, hunting and fishing permits, all the way to the reduction of waste that you can find um, through hunting and processing your own meat. But that will be a conversation. Maybe I'll have to have you back on just to talk about hunting.
2: I did want to say before we break off hunting, I I wanted to like kind of solidify my numbers, but only about 5% of the U.S. population hunts. And Of those 5%, they provide 60% of state wildlife agency funds. 60, six, zero. Um, It's massive, but the majority of those 5% are baby boomers. And Maine is one of the states, but a lot of states have an age cutoff where after a certain age, you don't have to pay for hunting licenses anymore. So when the majority of that population reaches 70, there's going to be a huge drop off of funds. And so I know I've said this to you, but I always say like the very least you can do if you are not a hunter and you, even if you don't agree with hunting, if you're a photographer, if you're a birder, a hiker, the absolute very least thing you can do is buy a fishing license even if you never use it. Um, and, and because it's really the main way that you're going to be contributing to conservation in your state financially.
1: Some very, yes, some very sound advice from Morgan. I think that's really important for listeners to hear. Um, because I, you know, a lot of our audience, I mean, this whole network is about conservation. So, um, or other aspects of how the American coastline is used. So I, I am so appreciative that you brought that up. And also because our listeners, we have a lot of young professionals and lifelong learners that listen to this show. So I think it's really important to share our experiences working in the conservation field in hopes that people can glean some sort of insight from you know, either what we've been through or what we're doing now. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what the process was like for you getting your foot in the conservation world's
2: door. Well, it wasn't easy. <laughs> um, initially, you know, I did the whole, uh, you have to do the whole internship gig. Um, so I was lucky enough to find an internship that started seven days after I graduated. Now I they well, even when I was getting my, Um, bachelor's. That's the only degree I have, by the way, (laughs) which is also uncommon in our field. Um, But when I was getting my bachelor's, I feel like there's such a push for summer internships, and I did not have the luxury of not working over the summer. So I did not do summer internships. I waitressed all through college. And when I graduated, I definitely was a little behind on the experience side, but not necessarily the knowledge side. Um, definitely not the drive side. There's only a handful of us from my graduating class that are still working in what I would call the industry. And even now I'm kind of on the cusp, but, um, I was lucky enough to find an internship that started seven days after graduation. And so after that, I was told when I graduated that you would have to apply to about on average 150 jobs before you got one when you're in the internship phase. And that was 100% accurate. I applied to 200 jobs in between that first internship and Shinkateek, where you and I met. And after that, probably another 50, 60 after that. Um, and it definitely, it's exhausting, isn't it?
1: It is so exhausting. And I, I think something else to note is that a lot of these internships are not paid or you make a really small stipend. So it's not, like you were saying, all that inclusive of people that can't take that time off from working to have these experiences and then you'll, it's a cycle. So the ones that can take the time to have those experiences, then get the the experience that they then use on their resume to get the full-time jobs. And I'm not saying it always happens that way, but it it uh, seems like a little bit of a system, an issue with the system in terms of um, being inclusive as to who gets their foot in the door. I mean, I talk about this a lot. I'm not gonna say this specific organization because I work with them frequently on my day-to-day job, but you know, they hire summer interns and we're in Boston. It's hard enough to live in Boston when you make a good salary and their internships are unpaid for the summer. And so they're only getting a certain type of person, um, a very homogenous look to their interns and backgrounds and experience levels and knowledge bases um, because it's, it's just a pot of people that can afford to come live in Boston unpaid for an entire summer. Um, So that's definitely challenging. I think that that is something that both of us have seen in our experience, um, trying to work our way into this field. Um, I'm very fortunate now to be in the position that I'm in with my day job, where I have a salaried position, but it did take going to uh, get my master's to get here. Because I definitely felt like there was a ceiling that I hit. Um, and I I don't know if you feel the same way or if you have thoughts on that. But uh, when I when I had my bachelor's degree, I felt like the jobs that were available to me, despite my drive, despite my knowledge, um, you know, despite my experience, that I only had a certain amount of jobs available to me until I had that piece of paper that said that I got my master's degree.
2: For sure. Um, especially I've noticed with government work, um, it's super limiting. Um, and it's really frustrating when you work on the practical side and not the policy side um, of wildlife or conservation work um, in the government. It's, it's almost infuriating because most of the time the people with bachelors that do not have their masters have more practical experience than the people with their masters. But, and this is, this is a wild (laughs) um, general uh, uh, statement that I'm making here. But from my personal experience, the people who had gone to receive their masters directly out of receiving their bachelor's had did not have a firm grasp on what was actually attainable um how to manage people how to work with people and those are the people in management positions um you know they they are really knowledgeable in one area unless they went to unless they got their master's in like uh human dynamics of wildlife Uh, which I find fascinating because I think that's an area we all need to work on. But if they got their masters on a specific species, um, I think that's wonderful, but it doesn't, it doesn't relate to their current position. And I feel like there's so much stock placed in that degree. And it's such a shame. And it's the reason I ended up leaving the federal government is because of that. Um, and I think everyone, everyone has had a supervisor or a coworker that has a more elevated position than them that should not be there. That does not have the knowledge, does not have the experience, um, but they got there for a reason. And in my experience in the federal government, that reason is a master's degree. And it sucks because I know that they worked hard for it, And I can appreciate that. But at the same time, you know, you have more people working crazy hours because that's what you do with wildlife. (laughs) You work crazy hours (laughs) and they're working their butts off and they're actually making a difference and they're being cut off at the knees. Um, and, And that was really frustrating for me to be a part of, because it did get to a point where I was ready to kind of take steps up. And I literally was not allowed to apply for these jobs. It wasn't a matter of, oh, you know, you could work on this, you could work on that, this candidate was better. It was a matter of, I literally was not allowed to apply. And why work in an environment where you literally cannot further yourself? Um, That was really frustrating for me. Not every federal agency is like that and not every state of each federal agency is like that. And I understand that. But where I was at that time, it's really hard in New England because there aren't a ton of options. Um, There's less space and in turn, less wildlife and in turn, less jobs. And um, so, yeah, so I had to leave. But um, I definitely... It, it's hard and I think it's harder than people think it's going to be. And they tell you over and over again, you know, you're not going to make any money. It shouldn't be about the money. Well, until a certain point, it is about the money. Cause if you don't have enough money to survive, this is not an option for you. And it definitely is weighed in favor of those that have a privileged background. If your parents do not have insurance, and you cannot be on that insurance until you're 26. Are internships even an option for you?
1: Yeah, I think that this is such an important conversation to have um, in a very realistic view of working in the conservation field. I don't think it's one that we've necessarily addressed on this show head on before. So I am so appreciative of your honesty and, um, you know, sparking a little bit of this discussion. Because as much as I love working in this space, there are a lot of areas where we can make improvement. Um, and I don't know where that discussion needs to start and where that action needs to start um, to reset where those benchmarks are to, to you know figure out who's qualified for a position or not. Um, because I don't think either one of us in in this conversation are trying to you know, either persuade or dissuade anybody from getting your master's degree or getting work experience, because I think really valuable lessons can be learned in, in both of those experiences. I think the most important thing is choosing the path that feels right for you um, and taking advantages of the opportunities that you have in front of you. Um, Where I think some of the frustration is coming out in this conversation relating to the conservation space is um, where those opportunities lie and who they're available to. um, And trying to figure out a way to be more inclusive of people in this conservation space that don't come from a privileged background um, and come from a wide range of different places and beliefs and backgrounds. Um, So that is a really important conversation for all of us to be having outside of the show. even.
2: Right, exactly. Yeah. And I think just if you find yourself in a situation where you can have an influence on your hiring process to really take a look at it um, and think about whether or not those things are actually necessary for someone to do a great job for you. Because I don't think some of them are necessary as someone who has been in the hiring position myself. I was really young at the time. Um, I didn't really feel, of course, this was at Baxter. Um, so I wasn't feeling a lot of things, <laughs> but I didn't feel the, um, I wasn't empowered, I guess, to change, um, the hiring process. Um, but looking back now, it, like, makes me cringe that I could have maybe done a lot more and, in turn, gotten a lot more as far as the workforce that was working for me.
1: Yeah, and I think on the flip side of what you just said, from the the applicant's perspective, you know, I have been, of course, I've been on both sides of the, you know, applying for jobs and then I've also um been on the hiring side of things. And I think a really great piece of advice is, and this is something I've done for jobs too, even if you don't meet all of the requirements on a job um, posting, don't let that bar you from throwing your resume and your cover letter out there because you just might get somebody on the other end that thinks in the way that Morgan and I do now where you know, it might not be a hard requirement for you to meet every single one of those bullets on the job posting. So if you feel that you're qualified for something, uh, you know, take a shot. And the worst that can happen is, you know, they they don't get back to you, which is infuriating if they don't tell you one way or the other. Um, but, you know, the worst that they can say is no. So get out there and and try. But, um, you know, so Morgan, just for listeners to give a little background on our relationship, uh, Morgan is someone that I am fully convinced the universe was set on me meeting and eventually as the universe does, it it succeeded. But uh, Morgan and I were both in the same graduating class at UMaine. And to our knowledge, we never met there, which uh, UMaine has close to 10,000 undergrad students. So that's not too shocking, given that we were in different majors at the time. And it really only uh, came out you know, later after we met that, you know, we have some stories about either being at the same parties or social gatherings and didn't bump into each other. That is until we were both assigned as roommates during a summer internship at Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge on a remote island off the coast of rural Eastern shore, Virginia. Um, so to me, that whole experience of, you know, us coming into each other's lives really feels like, um, the world, or whatever the powers are at be are, were sort of like, "Damn it, you guys need to be friends." You keep missing each other, and and now you guys have to live in this tiny room together for the next three months. But um, it worked. It worked. It worked. <laughs> it worked. Um, and it was such a great experience. But Morgan, I'm wondering, will you describe what our lives were like living on the island and working at the refuge, um, so the listeners can get a, a little bit of a view into what that experience was.
2: I would say, um, hazy and tired <laughs> <laughs> is <laughs> how I <laughs> think of myself when I look back. But I think not real life is kind of, and I've had a couple internships like that where it's, I look at it now and I'm like, man, that was like not real life. Um, you know, we woke up at two, two thirty AM. We had a half hour, no, we had an hour drive and a half hour boat ride out to the island we were working at. And then it was seven miles of walking in the sand every day, um, looking, looking for plover nests. And if there's ever been an animal trying the least to, to survive, (laughs) (laughs) it's the piping plover. (laughs) Um, and you know just we never got a full 8 hours we would sleep in like 4 hour shifts cuz we lived with 16 people and you just can't you can't get an 8 hours of sleep with that many roommates working different schedules but definitely was enlightening i had never lived anywhere outside of new england and i'm so happy that i got the opportunity to do that i don't think that part of the world was meant for me to stay in. I think I was definitely meant to come back this way. Um, And I was lucky enough to find a job up here. It it is hard. Um, But, you know, a lot of, I've never been more tan or more blonde in my life than I was (laughs) down there. I don't hate that part. Um, But it was also interesting. I'd never lived on an island And there is something to be said for island mentality. And it definitely primed me for when I went to live, um, in Millinocket because Millinocket, Maine, um, definitely is not surrounded by other towns and they also have that island mentality. And when I say that, I mean that if you don't, if you can't get it here, you don't need it. Um, And I definitely felt that, and it definitely prepared me. Uh, I got burnt out on that mentality and had to leave. (laughs) But um, Jenna, you stayed.
1: Yeah, so I was just going to jump in to say that um, I think it's a really important experience to have at least some point in your life where you really push the bounds of solitude Um, Because, you know, Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge, for listeners that may not be familiar with it, it's a series of barrier islands. So um, that's why Morgan and myself and our other two other teammates um, had to get up at 2.30 a.m. and hit the road, drive an hour south, and then to Wachaprig, Virginia, which is a very small, tiny village, um, and take our boat out through the marshes to get out to this island called Cedar Island which was uh, super remote, no houses on it except for an old Coast Guard base. and um, you know you're really you're really out there, but and then we would you know monitor, Morgan mentioned the piping plovers those are an endangered and uh, we also endangered shorebird and then we also monitored a couple other colonies of other threatened shorebirds uh, to you know tag them and count the population and monitor all of that. but, Post the uh, summertime, Chincoteague gets a lot of visitors because they are just an unbelievably beautiful refuge with miles and miles of beaches that actually continue on up into Maryland, which turns into a state park on the Maryland side. There are wild horses there. And, you know, we were living right on the refuge. And um, post-summer, everyone kind of goes away. (laughs) And I would imagine it is similar to Morgan's experience, Um, you know, both at the refuge at times and also uh, up at Baxter State Park, which we'll get into her experience there in just a couple of minutes. But um, you really learn a lot about yourself and your own connection, both inwardly um, and to the rest of the natural world when it really is just, you know, you and maybe a couple of other people um, holding down the fort in a very remote place. I don't think it's necessarily an experience that I would encourage anybody to have at a prolonged Level, um, because I think that much solitude can also make you feel like you're going a little bit crazy at times. Um, but, but I, you know, I learned a lot just having time alone in that big bunkhouse in that big refuge um, with just my thoughts and my own <laughs> experience. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but so from your post Shinkatig experience, you really went from one remote place to another, um, and you've sort of alluded to that a little bit. Let's hear a little bit more about your role and your experience working at Baxter State Park in Millinocket, Maine.
2: So I was the interpretive specialist at Baxter State Park, and so I was in charge of all the programming, signage the mountain patrol, um, which are the young people and sometimes not so young people, you know, we, we've had, we had, um, some retirees apply. It was definitely a physically demanding job. Um, but you know, power to you. Um, so kind of a why like any state job, anyone who works for the, a state job will know that really you work like seven jobs. Um, so is your classic state job. But for those of you who are not familiar with Baxter State Park, it is not actually a state park. It was created before the state park system was in existence. And uh, Governor Baxter refused to change the name after the state park system (laughs) became a thing. (laughs) So it's called Baxter State Park. It is home to Katahdin the northern terminus of the Appalachian Trail, and if you've heard of Baxter State Park, it probably has to do with that. There was a lot of drama a few years ago, um, some threatening of rerouting the trail, lots of drama going on at Baxter. That's nothing new, Um, but it is unlike any place you've ever been because of the history and the stories. So it's just under 210,000 acres And every single piece of property that makes up that plot was purchased by Governor Baxter. Um, He was governor of Maine. And it was purchased by him and individually deeded to the people of the state of Maine. Um, So it is the it is it belongs to the people of the state of Maine. So if you are a Maine resident, you do not pay to get into the park, um, which is awesome, I think. He also left an endowment that operates the park. So the park receives no tax funds for operation. Their employees are considered state employees and receive state benefits, but the benefits are paid by the endowment um, and the money that is accrued throughout the season from campers and and hikers. Um, It is a very special place. There's a ton of history. You know, they're one of the logging communities in the park, is where Jake Day visited and where he got the inspiration for Bambi, which a lot of people argue kind of jump-started the conservation mentality um, because people saw on television an animal that they could relate to because it was speaking. <laughs>
0: and, <laughs>
2: and they were like, oh, I want to save those animals. <laughs>
1: you just have um, to humanize everything and yeah, then get and, it, Yeah.
2: And it's awesome. You can you can go to that area and you can see what he saw. You know, not exactly because obviously trees grow, but it's a very special place. Um,
1: it is unbelievably beautiful there, honestly. If anyone is thinking about visiting Maine, if you can, I know it's quite the hike even from, you know, Portland. But if you can take the time to go visit, it is one of our crown jewels and is totally worth the while.
2: Absolutely. And I think, you know, when people think of New England states, they don't think of size, obviously, compared to Western states. But Baxter Park is located in Piscataquis County, which is, at least back in 2015, was one of, it was the 15th most wild county in the United States. I don't know if you knew that.
1: I didn't know that. And, you know, I actually was just home recently talking to my parents about just how big Maine is. There's just, I think we were talking about snowmobile trails and going into Canada and how long, you know, thinking about how long a certain trip would take that we were considering doing. And, uh, you know, my mom was like a little bit shocked about how long a particular route was going to take. And then we pulled up a map of Maine and kind of reminded her just how much wilderness. exists.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's extensive. And there are such large tracks that don't have roads. Um, and that really, even Baxter, you know, which thrives or survives off of its attendance has trailless areas that will forever remain trailless because they understand that that is, that's the whole point. The whole point is conservation. And if you're using and abusing, and I hate to say it, but a great example of this would be Acadia, that you lose that you lose that. And that's what people want to see. That's what people want to go to. You know, Baxter has so many rules and regulations. Um, and a lot of people see those as limits, but I think once you go there and you experience what it has to offer, you realize that the reason Baxter State Park is the way it is, is because of those in the age of, we call them Instagram hikers. Um, <laughs> where they're really just in it for a selfie at the top, a sel- a selfie and a good view. Um, oh God, I could talk for days and days about the problems there, but.
1: So from Baxter, I would like to hear a little bit more about the role that you took following your job there with USDA. Um, and for those of you that may be unfamiliar with the USDA, Stands for the US Department of Agriculture, and it is in charge and responsible for developing and executing federal laws relating to things like farming, uh, forestry, rural economic development, and food. So, what was your job there, and what were your responsibilities?
2: So, even though the US Fish and Wildlife Service exists, <laughs> um, there is a branch. Um, under the USDA called Wildlife Services. And under Wildlife Services, there are many branches, but one of them is the National Rabies Management Program. So they manage, like the title says, (laughs) rabies management for the entire country and Guam and Puerto Rico, um, really anywhere the virus exists on, on U.S. territories. So I left the park. I quit uh, without another job and I gave up my insurance. And that was a really big leap that again, I was lucky enough to have a family to catch me on the other end. Um, (laughs) And I, two weeks later, got this job and working for wildlife services in the state of Vermont and the state of Vermont is the test state for the new rabies vaccine And when I say rabies vaccine, I mean for wildlife, not for humans and pets.
1: (laughs) Good to clarify.
2: (laughs) So they were just starting. um, I think they were two years in to the study of the new vaccine, which is also the vaccine that Canada uses, and they were starting to um, create an enhanced rabies surveillance initiative. So... The goal was, okay, if we are going to have a new vaccine, that's twice as effective as our old one. We need to actually know what rabies looks like in these states. So we know what we're dealing with and how we can effectively combat the virus and, and basically look at, you know, how many baits we should be dropping and which areas we should be dropping them. So I was hired to create a network of cooperators in the state and in the state of Vermont. Basically, if you drew a line across the state from Montpelier and North, including the islands in Lake Champlain, all of that area is baited. So, um, and below that, um, I think it's, it's either 60 kilometers or 80 kilometers south of that is the buffer, is the buffer zone. So pretty much anywhere in the buffer zone or the baited area, the more north, the more important, obviously, um, I was being asked to reach out to cooperators. And basically what they were looking for is carcass collecting and testing. So one thing to note is even though this is a federal agency and they manage rabies for the country, the actual testing, every state does it differently. So what happens in Vermont does not happen in New Hampshire, does not happen in New York, does not happen in Maine. And that I know firsthand now, unfortunately. But in Vermont, it's a very unique situation in that there's a rabies hotline. And so any sort of rabies call, whether you call your local police department or you call your local game warden or, you know, your state wildlife agency – All of those calls get directed to the same place, um, which is great because it controls education. And as we all know, in conservation, education is everything. So I basically started with the trapping community and I reached out to um, all of the state listed trappers that were available for um, animal damage control or nuisance wildlife control and basically said, hey, um, if you... Have, you know, a dead raccoon? Can I come get it and test it for rabies? <laughs> Essentially, what I said, and um, I was really not surprised because who wouldn't want to know? In my mind, I would want to know if an animal I touched had rabies for free. Um, but I was really lucky in that I created a network of some awesome people.
1: And is that what you mean by cooperators, like people that are willing to give you their dead animals? Okay. (laughs)
2: Okay. Yeah, and it it surprised you that some people don't. Um, So in the state of Vermont, the state law is that wildlife um, that are rabies vector species are not allowed to be relocated off of a property that they're removed from. So if you have a skunk under your porch and you want it removed, it has to be euthanized. It can't not be relocated. If you own 50 acres, it's a different story. Um, It just can't leave your owned property because of the rabies transmission. So in turn, there were a lot more euthanizations. However, they have a much better handle on rabies management than some other states that do not have that. The other reason Vermont was a great state is because the state lab of Vermont offered to test 10 samples a week for free, which was amazing <clears throat> Um, because their test is a lot more accurate than other tests that are available for you to do like in a lab at the office. Um, as far as confirmation of rabies, especially when there's been a potential human interaction or exposure. So Vermont was an awesome place, um, for me to kind of sink my teeth into this initiative and get it up and running. And it ended up being really successful. I was really, um, oh my God, I said 10 samples. They do 20 samples a week. Sorry. Bump that up. Double it. It's
1: okay. I, I do that all the time. Well, not all the time, but there have been a few times where I've been, I get talking on this show and then I'm like, what? Fortunately, anytime I've done that, I've realized it and corrected myself. Um,
2: yeah. but <laughs> what happened. am I talking about? <laughs> yeah. So I would collect these animals and bring them back to the office and pull brain stems, pull teeth. We'd get them aged. we we collected, um, sex, age, weight. We also, um, the vaccine that the the new vaccine that we were testing for also left, um, a stain inside the tooth. It's called tetracycline. It does occur naturally. Um, but the, the baits have an elevated amount. So it stains the inside of the, the tooth blue. So not only could they see, okay, this animal ate the vaccine, but did it actually become vaccinated? Um, So a lot of different moving parts, but that was my main responsibility. Obviously, I was lucky enough to be able to cross train in other areas. Um, You know, the working with plovers, as you know, um, A lot of other agencies rely on wildlife services to execute certain jobs because they have such a specialized training. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's always great. You know, we got to travel a lot, meet with different people. Um, So it was awesome. And I really loved it. And it was definitely, you know, working in Chincoteague was my hands-on wildlife. You know, we didn't work with the public all that much. I know you ended up uh, doing a lot more public work. But when I was there, it was really just us and the birds. And then when I went to Baxter, it was me and the people and a lot of education, heavy, heavy, heavy on the education. You know, besides wildlife viewing that happened, I wasn't doing really anything hands on. And then when I went to work for the USDA, it was a perfect um, kind of blend of public and wildlife work.
1: And it was your Goldilocks job. Isn't that the, the just right? Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely
2: loved it. And I learned so much. And I worked with some absolutely amazing people that have more knowledge. Oh, so much knowledge. Um, I mean, we would have veterinarians riding with us to learn. Like, that is how much knowledge the people who work in, in that agency have it's really impressive. Um, I mean, they're pulling teeth, they're taking blood samples, they are handling, you know, thousands of animals a year, one person. Um, it's, it's, it was really an awesome job. I loved it. And I really felt like I was making a difference, not only on the wildlife side, but on the human side. And I think that, it can be kind of discouraging when you're only working on the wildlife side. Um, I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but you kind of feel like we're trying, we're trying, we're trying.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's just so, it's all about balance. I think just in everything that you do is finding that balance between the isolation and the, and the, you know, being too overwhelmed by people or animals and figuring out what, what is a good balance for you. And also, you know, good on you for working that closely with rabies because, and then talking to us on the show about it. Um, because I, I, when you're just speaking, I was thinking about, I don't know, this must've been like five years ago now, but I listened to a podcast about rabies and for like the next week, I feel like I was just in a constant anxiety attack about, oh my God, what if I get rabies or what if something, what if something bites me in my sleep and I don't know, I have it. Because it's really terrifying. It is terrifying. Um, so the work that you and your colleagues are doing is so important. And for listeners out there, um, if you don't know a whole lot about rabies, I encourage you to look up uh, You know what happens to those that are unfortunate enough to encounter it. Um, just be warned that if you are prone to anxiety like I am, it might not be the best subject matter <laughs> to dive into.
2: Yeah, but I I love how you said that because I feel like when people think of rabies at least the people in my world that I deal with rabies is like this far-off villain it's not an at-home threat and it is an an at-home threat and I feel like when people read about it in the news they're like oh my god can you believe it I'm like yes I can believe it Because it's here. And when you have declining populations of society removing certain populations of wildlife on a regular basis and and managing those populations, then you're going to have increased numbers and increased conflicts. And <clears throat> until... There's more of a regulated management style as far as the state federal relationship, which I know is always going to be a struggle in every category, but especially for rabies, I feel like there's always going to be an issue until people admit fault, Um, you know, I feel like any kind of conservation effort, there's always a learning curve. And people always want to think that what they're doing is the best. And it's, it's not the case. Um, and <clears throat> we are lucky to have n- neighbors to the north. Um, so Canada does not have raccoon rabies. The, there's different strains of rabies. And Canada does not have raccoon rabies. Um, they do, however, have a really healthy raccoon population um, specifically in Montreal and obviously Montreal is just a hop, skip and a jump from Vermont. Canada mm. actually pays for some of the baits in Vermont.
1: That's wild. So when you, when which you say is like, baits, that means that you're wild? baiting in animals that potentially have rabies. Is that okay?
2: Yeah. Uh, no, no, we're baiting animals that it, it it's a vaccine. So, okay, it's not a so treatment. you're
1: setting out I, I that's helpful. I mean, if I was lost on that, I'm sure that there were some s- listeners that were too that you're setting out the bait with the vaccines in it, then the animals will then eat okay
2: yeah and and um <clears throat> you know a, um it, in, in another example of how every state is different is on the cape, um, which has not had a positive rabies case since I think 2009 um which is so impressive it's completely volunteer run and they use the old vaccine which some people consider to be less effective um but their commitment is so strong I mean we're talking yeah. volunteers are volunteers doing this and it's, it's really crazy cool. central to uh the
1: success oh my God, of yeah. so many conservation programs
2: yeah, and I, I think if anyone has questions about what the National Rabies Management Program is doing to look, up, look them up and um, they're very accessible. <clears throat> you know, um, talk to your local wildlife services employees, <laughs> ask them questions. If, you're, if your state has a rabies hotline, you can call the hotline and ask your questions. Trust me, I've heard them all. I've gotten Bigfoot calls. I've, uh, I've got them all. <clears throat> it's nothing we haven't heard before. But, you know, I, I love talking about it because I loved being a part of that program. But it does get to a point where I don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about it in present day since I'm no longer a part of um, wildlife services. And there are some really great people who still are, and they would be able to to shed a lot more light and current, current light. And, you know, it's not just rabies. They also manage feral swine, avian influenza. I mean, there's so many different projects regarding wildlife services. They manage the wildlife on the airports in our country, um, which I know... Um, There have been some news stories in the past decade that would cause one to think, why isn't that someone's job? It is someone's job now. (laughs) Um, So I, I, there's, it's a whole part of wildlife conservation I didn't even know existed. And when I used to tell people what I did for a living, they were like, I can't believe that's someone's job. Um, and there are so many other jobs out there like that. And so, to kind of go back to, you know, starting out, I would say don't pigeonhole yourself because there is way more out there than I ever knew in this field. There are animals out there you don't even know in this field. <laughs> um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just crazy. I'm so happy I, I got that experience in my life, and who knows maybe one day i'll I'll get to go back if you know some things change in my life, but <laughs>
1: Well, I would hire you any day. Anybody out there that's looking to hire Morgan, let us <laughs> <No>. know.
2: <laughs> I do I like my job now. It's just different.
1: <laughs> but I mean, either way, you have had quite the career path and I I thank you for sharing it with us and um as we wrap up, I I want to ask you a series of questions that I've actually started to ask everybody that comes on my show. Because it's turned into this fun exercise for me to learn from your expertise and insights. But then I've also started noticing these these common themes um, in the responses.
2: Mm So
1: um, what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we're faced with?
2: So I don't want to offend anyone, but I'm going to say this. Definitely knowledge and education. People hear climate change, climate change, climate change. And people know the word. And people know the word conservation and they know the words threatened and endangered. But I currently work at a place with a lot of taxidermy and I get to see and hear people's comments on certain animals. And I understand that people are not going to know every animal. Um, But when you're confusing turtles for crabs and when you are and this used to happen at the park all the time. When you're asking me what time of year deer turn into moose, and, and it really drives home, we are unique citizens. You and I talking to each other, even people who have zero work experience but have a degree or were raised in a family that spends time outdoors, we are unique citizens. And there are so many people out there that literally have no idea. And it's not their fault. But just taking the time to educate people, like it, it blows people's minds. It has literally blown a woman's mind when I told her a deer and a moose were two different animals. She was like, oh, my God, really? And it's sad. It's sad. But I think we can get so caught up in pushing and pushing that we forget to go back and start at the basic foundations to try and bring others up to even a fraction of where we find ourselves with our colleagues. Um, I think that's the biggest issue is you can push all you want, but unless the general public knows, (laughs) we're not going to get anywhere.
1: Yeah. I think I'm more upset that deer and moose are separate species because what a transformation that would be. Oh my goodness. My imagination. Huge growth
2: spurt. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Oh man, that would be wild. Um, But yeah, I think you're spot on. You know, us in the conservation field, we have a very specific knowledge base and set of expertise, but I certainly do not know Everything. I have a whole lot to learn um, and see it as my role to try to impart any of that knowledge that I do have on people that might not be as well versed in the outdoors. Um, and I think a lot of it is like exactly like you said, just meeting people where they're at and being kind and patient and understanding with people that, um, you know, maybe aren't up to speed or think that deer turned to moose um, and seeing it as as, is, you know, opposed to a opportunity to be annoyed or make fun. I know we laughed a little bit because it is a little bit shocking, but, um, you know, take it as a learning opportunity in a moment to educate somebody when you come across people like that. And because I love to end on A little bit more of an uplifting note, because I think sometimes the topics that we talk about in the conservation field can be a little heavy. Um, Not always, but sometimes. Um, I'm wondering, what are you hopeful for moving forward?
2: I am hopeful... Man. Yeah, to get more people in the outdoors. I think that sparking appreciation and curiosity is, you know, people are people. And I think everyone kind of is curious about everything, but kind of just getting people started. A lot of people are going to be able to do the rest on their own. You know, most people know when they do not know something and just creating an environment where it's okay to not know and it's okay to want to go find out. I think that's what I'm most hopeful for is especially young people, especially kids, especially women. Um, I, I love, you know, it, coming back to the hunting population, um, there's more and more women hunters every year. And I think it's great because um, studies have shown that women are more likely to take the children hunting And I'm just so excited to see, I mean, obviously there's a ton of work that needs to be done and trends are definitely not in the favor of the comments coming out of my mouth right now, but I feel like we know there's a problem and we know where the problem lies and we're, we're grasping at straws to try and figure it out. And I have hope that we are going to figure it out. And I'm coming from an education standpoint just because that's most of what I've done and most of, you know, the problems that I've seen. Um, So that's kind of, you know, where this comment is coming from. But I'm excited. There are so many awesome programs starting out there in every state. Um, I'm working with one right now in Maine that's getting started. Um, You know, we have Becoming Outdoor Woman. We have, you know conservation camps popping up where kids can, it's like a sleepaway camp for conservation. You know, I think it's so awesome. And I'm just really looking forward to the different opportunities that I hope my kids will have.
1: And this, this last one's a bit of a two-parter, but, um, what's the best advice that you've ever been given?
2: Yeah. I thought about this one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, I have, years after and years of reflection later, I have been lucky enough to be in work environments that were not good. Um, And I think whether you've had issues in your personal life or your work life and you've developed regrets about decisions you didn't make Or situations you didn't remove yourself from. um, And also talking about mentors. I had an an absolutely amazing mentor. um, When I worked at the park. Um, Her name is Jean Hookwater. She was the naturalist there. And she had been for the majority of her life. She started working there when she was 18. And she left when she was 58. Um, And we went through a lot together. Both um you know in terms of negative situations in the workplace whether it was sexism sexual harassment sexual assault um you know it's easy to read about things in the news and especially in my family as we've touched upon <laughs> look at the news and think yeah that's not really happening um it's really happening And it really does happen to people that I love and that I care about and that I was responsible for. And Jean taught me to trust myself. And there are a lot of books out there on the science of fear. And it doesn't always have to be a human resources issue. And knowing, you know, if your gut says something's wrong, then something's wrong. And just to remove yourself from a situation. And I, I I'd Reverse that as well. Like, as far as confidence, if you trust yourself and think that you can do this job, then just go out there and freaking do it. And if you do not feel comfortable being a woman alone in the outdoors, that's okay. And kind of find where you're not comfortable and work on those. So, trust yourself is what I would say, because there were times where I didn't. And they are the moments in my life that I regret the most.
1: I think that that is beautiful piece of advice. And it, it also sort of leads into that second part of the question. So I mean, we can skip it, or you can, um, you know, share more if you want to. The second part is what advice do you have for our listeners? Um, I think that you just gave some really sound advice. But while we have you on the show, I always like to ask that two-parter about, you know, what have you learned from others? And then what can you then pass on to our guests? And sometimes it is the same. Um, however, sometimes, you know, you have a little more to say, so I'll leave that to you.
2: Yeah. I would say, I guess if I was like talking to my 22 year old self that started this journey, Um, uh, I wish I'd known it sooner. I wish that I had, I, I was lucky enough to kind of throw myself into jobs where I didn't have all the knowledge. I mean, if you have all the knowledge to do a job, then you're overqualified, frankly. Um, you know, you should be going into a job craving more and having the ability to learn more, um, and especially when I took the job at wildlife services, I, I had no idea. I didn't know anything about rabies, but I had learned what not to do at the park and how to stick up for myself and that I wanted to be better and that I was just going to have to throw myself into it and figure it out along the way and know that if it didn't work out, that. I could always substitute teach and waitress. <laughs> um, thank God for those. So yeah, in, in every aspect, in I, I think when someone says trust yourself, I mean, we're all kind of thinking about a specific part of our life where you're like, yeah, I should do that. Whether it's with a relationship with your partner or at work or with a family member that rubs you the wrong way. Um, that it's okay to be the person that's not okay. And it's okay to be the person that says they're not okay. And in my case, eventually I did that. Um, I did receive, um, there was a backlash um, and I ended up leaving, but I made an impact for the people who didn't leave and they reached out to me and told me that they were appreciative of my actions. And after that moment, I was like, that's it. We're done. I am going to do this from now on. I'm going to trust myself. Um, I mean, I could, you know, I hope one day someone does write a book about the things going on up there, but until that day comes I'm going to sit here. (laughs) Maybe we'll read about it in the Bangor Daily someday. Um, But that would be my advice. If you think that you're lacking a skill, go out and find someone to help you teach it. If you are curious about something, go out and find out about it. Um, Yeah. Trust yourself.
1: Yeah. And I think from my experience, you know, people love to serve as a mentor. People love to be viewed as the expert. You know, it can be really intimidating to reach out to somebody that is a boss or in a really high up position or someone that has a lot more power than you. Um, But from my own personal experience and times that I've done that, uh, it it seems to always have gone well. Um, Or, you know, when I've had people reach out to me asking for advice, um, I feel very flattered that someone would care about what I have to say. So um, if you are looking up to someone, you don't hesitate to reach out to them. Um, And then also, Morgan, I think it's really brave of you for doing what you did and speaking up and standing up for yourself, um, because that is a really scary thing to do. If you're, especially in a professional situation, um, you know, speaking up, and standing up for yourself, listening to your gut when something doesn't feel right, even if it means removing yourself from a toxic situation, because you never know who else is having a similar experience mm-hmm. and might need to either hear what you have to say or see you make a stand or um, you know, learn from your actions. So thank you for listening to yourself and sharing everything that you've shared with us today.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been great.
1: Yeah, and honestly, I feel like I want to have you on as a repeat
2: yeah, uh, I mean
1: interview because we've got a lot to say and you know, this <laughs> is already a, a bit of a longer interview um but everything we touched on is so important and I think that it would be worth having you back on again someday.
2: I would love that. I mean, like I said, I definitely have had challenges every step of the way. Um, But they prepare, you know, my mentor, Jean, she told me some lessons, there's only one way to learn them. And sometimes that way absolutely sucks. And I've learned a lot of those lessons. And I just hope that I I mean, I know that they make me a better employee, a better coworker, a better supervisor. Um, And it saddens me that there is only one way to learn those lessons. But um, I have reached a point where part of me is grateful for learning them. It saddens me that there are still people suffering um, in that situation that I was lucky enough to remove myself from. But um, yeah, I could. I can talk a lot. I feel like I rambled a lot. I feel like we talked about a lot, but it feels good. Hopefully someone learned something or learned something about themselves through reflection or I don't know.
0: Yes,
1: absolutely. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I just really appreciate you so much. And thank you again for sharing with us today. Um, I, I certainly think that people will pull a lot from this conversation.
2: Well, I hope so. Thanks for being a badass and just pressing on out there. (laughs) I do what I can. You're killing it. I'd also also like to
1: thank the listeners. Uh, So if you enjoyed what you heard today and want to hear more, subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network, wherever you listen to podcasts to find this show and a whole suite of other shows housed under the network subscribes rates and reviews are always appreciated. We also love hearing from you, and you can find us on Twitter at Coastal News 365 and Facebook at the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today. You can find me personally on Twitter at Yenna Benna, it's Y-E-N-N-A, B-E-N-N-A, and Instagram is the same thing, but Yenna has three N's in it. So find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines.